As I was uh, looking at the text for this morning and thinking about how I might introduce uh, the sermon today, I thought a good way to go would be to, to, to confess that I'm terrible with uh, directions. Uh, lousy. GPS was created for people like me. And um, often when I'm in the car driving around, uh, you know, my mind goes off and I'm wanders and I just miss turns all the time. It happens all the time, almost every time. I'd love to say I'm deep in thought because I'm a deep person, but I'm just totally, to, 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 totally have my mind wandering. And uh, so quite often, because I'm not good with directions, um, even though I've lived in this city for going on 25 years, uh, when I, when I open up my, the, the map on my, my phone and there's the pin is there for the location that I'm going to, I've always got to zoom out. I need way more context. Uh, if if I just see two or three streets, that is not enough for me. I gotta zo- I gotta zoom out. I'm pinch and zoom, pinch and zoom. Get more context so that I can get my bearings. Uh, the scripture that we're going to use this morning uh, is going to be excerpts from First Ch- Peter chapter two and three. So in a sense, the sermon today is going to be like a pinch and zoom. We got a pinch and zoom, zoom out to get way more context. We've been going through a series on perseverance and patience and peace. We've been working through the letter of 1 Peter um, because it's a a great one. It's about having um, perseverance and hardship and holiness and hardship and trusting God in hardship. So it's been good. But I want us this morning to sort of zoom out and follow track a little bit with the the broader context of the letter um, so we can get a sense of how this perseverance and patience and peace uh, comes into our life as we sort of look at the gospel, be refreshed in the gospel, and think about the implications of the gospel. So uh, uh, as it comes up on your, on your screen there, you'll see uh, numerous references uh, throughout chapter 2 and 3. Um, but uh, if you like this afternoon, you can read those chapters in their entirety. But I've done this so we can sort of pinch and zoom and get a broad picture of um, uh, how God's word uh, is encouraging us uh, in this way. So 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since, the, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. Now, as we consider the difficult days that we're, li- that we're living in right now and the need that we have for perseverance and for patience and for peace, as we consider all of these things, you know, we look to God's word and we realize uh, over and over that Christian faith does not mean that we're Stoics. It doesn't mean that if you trust God enough, you somehow won't be emotive and, and moved by the world and what's going on around us. As, as Christians, we feel very deeply, um, and yet we can feel deeply without drowning in despair like it's a bog of sadness. What the gospel does is it comes into our hearts, it comes into our lives, and it pulls us out. Um, Even this past week at our midweek gathering, we were reading through Philippians, and the apostle, very much like the apostle uh, here in 1 Peter, it it sounds a lot like, um, if you trust in God, uh, to use the words of Philippians, it's like the apostles found the secret of contentment, that despite what's going on around uh, him, despite the fact that he was, you know, uh, in prison when he wrote it, um, his, he's free in his soul. It's like his soul is free and in the heights of heaven. And we very much in these difficult, hard days we're living in need that freedom of the soul uh, so that in our hearts and in our minds, um, uh, we can, uh, like the apostles, feel that sense of freedom like we're in the heights of heaven, but then tangibly, practically day to day, have that freedom work out in beautiful uh, and simple ways. And so we're going to look at this gospel freedom as we sort of unpack this text to see that it, it it's not just going to lift our soul you know in a spiritual way it will also work its way out in our life in tangible ways and that's the flow of the text that we just read there so we're going to consider three things about this gospel freedom as that text began with calling us to live as free people um, so th- what we want to look at is um, what this gospel freedom is why it matters and and what it looks like so firstly what is it and why does it matter? Um, as the text begins, live as free people, we see, and we talked about this last week, so I'm just going to touch on this briefly um, again this morning, but we see that freedom uh, throughout the scriptures is not a fixation on the self. Freedom is an intentional focus away from the self. That plays out in how we relate to God and one another in the church, the government, our vocations, relationships, marriage relationships, all relationships. This intentional focus away from the self. Verse 23 says that when we look to Jesus, who is our example um, of this of this liberty, what we find is uh, Jesus was continually entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And so to the degree that we learn to continually turn to God in these difficult times, God forges this perseverance and this patience and this peace in us because we are trusting in the one who judges justly. And so this freedom uh, of the gospel, it is a freedom from things for things. It is a freedom from sin for righteousness. It is a freedom uh, from the inward curved posture that really ends up in suffocation and frustration. It is freedom from all of this fixation on self and is a freedom for uh, the love and the service and the care of others. We see this because being created in God's image, our very God is within himself, uh, 
a trinity. And so before the foundations of the world, God was enjoying an outward facing love and care and, and uh, joy, uh, even within himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit before the world was created. So we being, uh, not just simply to borrow a term from uh, James Smith, we're not just sentient meat. Uh, we are created in the image of God. We have souls. And because that is true, and because we were created in the image of God, we very much uh, have this innate uh, uh, need to not be fixated on ourselves, but to curve outward in an expression of love and of care. And that is actually what true freedom is. This freedom to serve, this freedom to love, firstly towards God, but then towards other, this is on a, a collision course with our cultural ideas about freedom. Because as we said uh, last week, broadly speaking, our culture thinks about freedom uh, in solely personal terms. Whereas the Bible over and over is showing freedom being walked out in sacrificial terms. Um, broadly speaking, our culture thinks about freedom uh, with a sort of tone like, you know, don't you dare put any restrictions on me. But throughout scripture and here in this text, we see as it plays out practically, it's not a matter of freedom looking like not having restrictions on me. True freedom is actually says, in order to love you and serve you, I'll actually gladly put restrictions on me. And so this is a, a picture of this, the freedom of Jesus Christ uh, the freedom with which he lived. And here's why it matters. Because this, uh, the shape of the gospel becomes the pattern for our freedom. So James, or sorry, Peter is saying here, you know, look to Jesus as an example. And uh, when he says that, he's not saying that to crush the church. He's saying it to liberate the, liberate the church. Because when we look at uh, Jesus, we see a picture of humanity perfected. We see a picture of that united to him by grace and full of the spirit, uh, who God is intended uh, for us to be and how we're intended to live. And that being a picture of actual freedom. And the significance of this is because it becomes the, the, the form for marriage relationships. It becomes the form for all relationships. And so that's why we sort of zoomed out to look at the text to say, why is he giving us this long sort of laundry list of ways we're supposed to relate to people uh, if this whole thing starts out with live, live as free, what does that freedom look like? Well, it plays out um, in this way uh, because Jesus was so free um, from the expectations of others. He was free to serve and empty himself and love others. And so uh, because that is true, we see in Jesus um, that he's not a doormat. Uh, we, we see that he's tougher than nails. We see that Jesus was so free, he's able to wash the dirt and the dung off of his disciples' feet. He's a king that stoops. And so what we get here in this text here in First uh, Peter is we've got a king who stoops. And if he was truly free, um, then our freedom is going, to be ex is going to be expressed in our ability as well to stoop. Think about, um, in a, I'm just going to give a very small example of how this is playing out for us in, uh, in getting in touch with the way that we are created by our creator God here in COVID. Um, You've probably read articles or seen things online about this incredible increase of uh, people who have uh, purchased pets, brought pets into their home. This incredible increase. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, of course, the enjoyment and, uh, and, and so on and so forth of having a pet. But, but part of it is that that pet is 100% dependent. 
And by bringing a pet into your home uh, at, a, at a time when the last sort of 10 or 11 months has been a, a struggle to not be totally fixated on ourselves and our own thoughts and be in our own heads, you bring a pet into your home and all of a sudden you've got this, uh, this outlet where, where, you, where there is a demand now being placed on you to get outside of yourself. And so again, if we were just you know, a collocation of molecules and there was no God and we evolved from nothing for no reason and we were sentient meat, um, there's no evolutionary biological advantage um, to, to you know, sort of the giving yourself to this dependent thing. And I suppose an argument could be made to say, well, perhaps it would help the propagation of our species if, if uh, our mental health was better, so pets are good for that. Perhaps that could be an argument. But what I would say to you is that in this small example of, of this difficult time in our lives of people saying, I got to bring a pet into the house, is that there's something deep in the human soul that's saying, I'm, if I'm just constantly fixated on myself every day, there's nothing healthy about this. I need to get outside of myself. I got to get out of my head. I got to get out of my heart. I, I gotta, I've got to direct myself towards something else. That is true freedom. Jesus living this life, this other-centered, outward-focused life is actually true freedom. And we as Christians are being um, called into it. Now, before we move on to uh, how it looks, which is where we'll sort of close the sermon this morning by looking at all of the implications of this, we need to stop and fixate on the actual grace of the actual message of the gospel. Some of you may be joining us this morning. You're exploring Christian faith or you're new to the Bible. And what you need to know, uh, which is critical, is that this life of freedom and love or service or sort of getting outside of ourselves and trying to be caring citizens, these are not things Christians do to gain God's approval. We don't have to do anything to gain God's approval. Jesus Christ, through his perfect life and his atoning death and his divine resurrection, has already gained God's approval for us. So the life of freedom being expressed by a Christian in love and service is not for God's approval. It is from approval. It is from freedom. That's why Peter can boldly write this way to the church because he knows none of us are saved by our loving and kind behavior because it's all deeply flawed. But Jesus Christ and his perfection is what in the end saves us. So we trust in him. We put all of our chips on him. So for those of you who've maybe been uh, with us at Redeemer for a while through COVID and you've been tuning into these services. What you need to know is that the way to be received and loved and accepted by God is not by rolling your sleeves up and trying to walk out the implications of this text. It is by trusting in Jesus Christ, the only one who perfectly walked out the loving life that is demonstrated in all biblical texts. And when you trust in him, his, the, the perfect life that he lived, that we ought to be living, but that we fail at. And through his atoning death that he died for our sin and rose again on that third day, that by trusting in him, by pu- putting your faith in him, uh, this is what the scriptures say saves us. And so I want to encourage you that uh, if you've not done that, that uh, to do that, to place your faith in Christ, that maybe after the service or sometime this week, you can contact me and send me an email and let me know that you've come to faith in Christ. And we can make arrangements uh, once we're safely able to gather again uh, for your baptism 
Baptism is the sign that you've placed your faith in Christ. So Peter knows all of these things are true about the fact that we are saved by Christ's perfection and not our progress. And because that is true, he boldly calls this church, you know, this church here, this first church, and our church by extension into walking out the implications of freedom, which looks actually like a life of, of service. And so if you believe the gospel, um, these are the implications of it because there is a vast difference, uh, of course, as I just said, between what the gospel is for you and then what the gospel does, does through you. If you've been around church for a while, you might have heard this phrase, Christ in him crucified. What that means when Paul originally said, I don't want to know anything except for Christ and him crucified. Well, Christ is who Jesus is in the gospel, you know, uh, his, his, his goodness towards us through the crucifixion. But when he says Christ and him crucified, the and him crucified part is the benefit. It's like saying Christ and his benefits. Is there any day-to-day tangible, physical, you know, real life as I'm living on planet Earth benefit to putting my faith in Jesus? Or is it just this spiritual head trip that Christians do? Christ and him crucified. Christ and his benefits. Uh, The benefit of placing your faith in Christ and trusting in the eternal is that it radically transforms your ability to give of yourself here in the temporal, in the day-to-day. You are free from the fixation of the moment because you're not handcuffed uh, to, to the fragility of the moment. And so Christians, we, we desire, Redeemer, I'm, I'm speaking to you, we desire now uh, this imitation of Christ precisely because we've been liberated and freed by him. One of the things that our family really enjoys is videos of dancing children. In fact, when, when the kids were even doing the hokey pokey earlier with Susan, I was uh, leaning over and looking at the other laptop so I could see the kids dance. Dancing kids are great. When you watch these videos of these little kids with incredible rhythm, we love it. We can't get enough of it. Dancing toddlers, more videos in our lives, please. We love these videos of these dancing kids because when you watch a small child who can really dance, there's something about it that it seems ironic because they seem too little to be able to do it, but yet here they are with this just incredible sense of rhythm. They're just throwing down all these incredible moves and it's because they've watched and intently chosen to imitate. And there's just something about it that's so special. And so we, in this text, as it flows through, you know, all the implications of what it looks like, we're like those dancing children. We're to look at Jesus, look at the life of love that he lived, know that we're not saved by the life of love that we're living, but desire greatly for that sort of imitation. And to be like those dancing toddlers, to be like, you know, we're going to miss steps and we're going to mess up and we're going to have days where we wake up and we say, I don't want to dance. I don't want to imitate you. I'm going to take a me day and be selfish and myopic and curved inward and only think about my... We all do that. We fail miserably. But as Christians, we get up, we, tr- we repent, we trust in God and we desire to be like those dancing toddlers and imitate Jesus. So with that, let's move on to the final thing this morning, which is, you know, what does this all look like? And... As you unpack the text, and I've again, I just chose to um, sort of zoom out and grab a couple of the uh, the, the um, writings in this passage that link it all together. You can read them in great detail. But how it looks is you've got it begins with marriage relationships, and then it moves on to all relationships. And how it looks is, is so incredibly significant. We start with husbands and wives, and you've got this picture of cross-shaped love. So you see the logic of the gospel. 
is that Peter is like, if your marriage is going to be 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 one of love, it's got to be fixated on the one of true freedom and of true love. So the husband and wife relationship is to look like this cross-shaped love, this willingness to give, this willingness to serve, this willingness to empty ourselves, the sacrifice. The gospel is the pattern for marriage, and therefore the gospel is the power for your marriage, the power to walk out your marriage to the degree that we 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 um, you know fixate on Christ and meditate on on Him in, in in our times of prayer and meditation. That we are fueled with the ability to lay our lives down for our spouses to care and love love for them. You know, in COVID, it's been difficult on marriages, incredibly difficult on marriages. People who are used to going to two different offices or doing their thing or one parent's home with the kids and the other one is at work or however that plays out. People are used to that. All of a sudden, we're in each other's space all the time. All the married people know what I'm talking about. Now, fortunately for Susan, I'm very easy to get along with. This has been a, this has been a seamless experience for her <laughs> no it, i'm getting signs over on the chair that it hasn't been as easy as it but the all of us it's been difficult it's been a challenge we've got to lay our lives down and uh you get two different pictures of that the what you know the the wife submission to the husband the husband uh, the language here i mean it is a mutual submission really but the husband's um understanding and honor of the wife it's not wink wink honor your wife because it's the same word used for honoring the government so you don't wink wink honor your wife and wink wink honor the government you wink wink honoring everybody this is a real there's a gravitas to this and i'm just going to quickly say uh d- define this term that says that we're to the the husbands were to um Love and honor our wives as the weaker vessel, because that, for the modern ear, is just a that's it's, it's a game. That's a game ender right there. So I want to explain that um, vessel in the Greek. It just simply means container. It's it's this is a physical conversation at a time when uh, in the ancient world and even sadly still today, where marriage looked like uh, domination, either physical do- physical domination, uh, sexual domination emotional or mental domination. It was just a time when there was just a tremendous advantage that was uh, being taken, taken of wives. And so the text is specifically saying, this is the shape of all these other marriages. They look like domination, not yours. You don't have a king who's Jesus, King Jesus was not like I'm king of the cave. King Jesus was a king who stoops. So for us as husbands, the picture is, listen, you know, in the ancient world, you don't, don't take advantage of your wife. You're supposed to be honoring and loving her and caring for her. And so this weaker vessel language, this is physical. It's not intellectual. It's not spiritual. Um, you know, there's a lot of examples of how that isn't true in the scriptures, but perhaps the most low-hanging fruit would be, you know, God chooses Deborah to be the fourth judge of the nation of Israel before Israel had a king. So here we are in the year 2021 asking very provo- provocative, you know, thoughtful questions like, you know, is Canada ready for a, a woman prime minister? Is America ready for a woman president? And here we are thousands and thousands of years before Christ was born and God was easily ready for a woman judge and he makes Deborah the judge of Israel before they have a king. So just so we're all really clear, you know, the authority structure was God, Deborah. I mean, that's what it was. There's no arguing that. So when when this text says you know honor your wife as the weaker vessel this is this is language about this. do not get into the king of the cave domination there's got to be a love and a service and a care that should look like uh king jesus 
And so the significance of that is, is important for us as, as married. So I'm going to move on and close with the non-married relationships, but I'll suffice it to say that we can't look to the culture um, for a picture of what marriage should look like. Because again, freedom, culturally speaking, is defined in personal terms. But the scripture is defined, defining your freedom in sacrificial terms. So ladies, men, we can't look to the culture and go, well, what does, what does freedom look there? I'll import that freedom into my marriage. Because two people looking at each other and saying, you're not the boss of me, isn't going to work very well. Two people looking at each other, you know, and saying, you know, you know, the highest calling in my life is my own personal fulfillment and you happen to be a hurdle of that. So this marriage is over. We can't look to the culture. Sadly, I wish I could say look to the church or look to Christians, but we can't really do that because that's pretty hit and miss. You can't look to the culture. You can't look to the church. In some contexts, you'll find marriages in the church that are beautiful demonstrations of this. And you don't have to look very far to find examples where churches interpret interpret this and it's microwaved chauvinism with a couple scripture verses thrown in. So we, where do we look? We got to look to Jesus. We have to look to the King, the one who stooped, the one who gave, the one who loved, and let that pattern be the power for our marriage. So let's move on from the marriage uh, relationship, and um, let's just move on to all relationships. In in verse eight, it goes on to say, "Finally, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, humble mind." This. This oneness is not sameness. There can be unity in diversity. In this Redeemer Church, we've got varying political philosophies. We've got varying views on all sorts of things, but we can be a people of unity because really when you look at all of these descriptors, sympathy, love, tenderness, humility, these are all descriptors of a person whose heart is not in self-protect. The text is saying, get out of self-protect mode. Don't keep all your other, you know, the relationships in the church at arm's length. You can be warm. If you're free, you can let people in. If you're not free, you got to keep everybody at arm's length. You can't be vulnerable. If you're not sure you're loved and accepted and valued, secure about who, who you are, this whole passage is incredibly difficult. And so you see the gospel, the the, the reality of who Jesus is for us and what he did at the cross, the love for you and I demonstrated in the cross, it changes the way we understand ourselves, changes the way that we see ourselves, and that frees us. Because if somebody says, I love you, but they don't know the first thing about you, you know, they met you a month ago and they're like, I love you, they don't, they don't deeply know you. They don't know the dark, disgusting, unevangelized parts about you. So for somebody to say, I love you, but they don't know you, that's superficial. But if somebody really gets to know you and they really see the dark, ugly, disgusting parts of you and they, they get a window into your heart and they see these unevangelized corners, these really gross parts of you, and then they reject you, it's devastating. And what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is what frees our hearts, church, is God sees the worst, disgusting sinful parts of us, and he loves us anyways. The picture of the cross is that we were the nails in his hands, and he loves us anyways. That freedom, that sense of of validation and identity and love and care and acceptance that is on a benevolent divine level, it frees us 
to not live life in the church with everybody else at arm's length. Because we already know who we are. We already know that we're loved and cared for despite all of our flaws and failures. And it frees us and liberates us to let others in. This is the picture of the language that's, that's given through this, this, uh, this passage. And then in verses 9 through 12, we're given this long list of things that often we're really tempted to do when we want retribution or judgment, take our pound of flesh, feel vindicated when we're wrong, defend ourselves, win at all costs. The text says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't do the reviling for reviling. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away, do good, seek peace, pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. All of this instruction, what is this instruction for us to do? Is not an instruction for us to be a doormat. Jesus was not a doormat. He loved deeply. He was totally free. He was tougher than nails. God wants to forge perseverance and patience and peace in us as we turn uh, to trust in him, to trust in the one who judges justly. And so I close with this. It all plays out, uh, this passage, it all plays out in these relationships with just tremendous freedom. We will be free to honor the government because our hope and our happiness and our security is not contingent on any of the decisions of the government. Our lives are not in the hands of the government. We know at the deepest level our lives are in the hands of God. We will be free to serve and prefer our spouses because we won't put the impossible burden of soul fulfillment on our spouses. We won't crush them with our expectations to be our source of fulfillment because united to Christ and looking to him, the spirit through prayer, we are increasingly being brought into a place of fulfillment because Jesus Christ is our source of fulfillment. We will be free to carve time out of our schedules and to go do the extra work to reach out and care for each other in this church because we won't be so guarded with a death grip on our schedules, living our life at arm's length from everybody else. As a church community, we will be free to bless the greater KW community in very small and ordinary, beautiful, caring ways, whether it's people at work, people in your school, conversations with your neighbors, free. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for us is that all of this instruction... They are not simply, you know, descriptions of things we ought to be doing. They are descriptions that by the grace of the Spirit and His work of who we are becoming. And so Jesus Christ, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. You were like straying sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus Christ, the overseer of our souls, he brings freedom to our souls. And by God's grace, we're saved and loved by this good shepherd. And then by that same grace, we're called to love and care for each other like shepherds. May we live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace and may we enjoy him forever. Let's pray.